Good morning, Orchard. You guys ready to get back in the book of Esther today? All right, take your Bibles out. Turn to the book of Esther, chapter 6. It is on page 205, using one of the Bibles you may have picked up when you came in uh, this morning. Let me ask you guys a question. You can uh, kind of, by a, a show of hands, participate in this question this morning. How many of you guys have ever been in a situation, a challenging situation, maybe in your, your marriage, your finances, something with your health, a job, something with your kids or a relationship, and you ask the question, how can this change? I mean, how could this possibly get better? Anybody ever felt like that? How many of you right now feel like maybe you're in that kind of situation? Yeah, you know, we all felt that way last night, didn't we? When it was 35 to 7 at halftime, we were like, how could this possibly turn around? You know, but God is more concerned about us as individuals than he is a football game, although that was important to us. And there are times in our lives where we come up against something, a circumstance in our life, where we go, you know, this just seems hopeless. You know, how, how can this turn around? How could this get any better? How can I get out of this? How could this change? And I want to encourage you this morning with this thought that sets the theme for chapter 6 of Esther today. God does his best work during hopeless times. If you believe that, say yes. yes. That, that's when God has the opportunity to step in and do a miracle in our life. When we don't know the answer how, we do know the answer of who. Who can change things and who can turn things around? That's where we find ourselves as we continue our study in the book of Esther. Uh, as we've looked at the first five chapters, we've been out of the book for a few weeks with the Christmas holiday and everything. So now we're jumping back in. We're right at the midpoint of this story. There's ten chapters in the book of Esther. And we're in chapter six today, right at the midpoint. And we find ourselves in this story in a seemingly hopeless situation. I mean, how can things possibly turn around? And let me kind of, because it's been a few weeks, and maybe if you're a guest today, you're new to our church, this is how we predominantly study the Bible. We go to a book of the Bible, and we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way verse by verse all the way through. So let me kind of catch you up on this story, where we've been so far, and, and where we find ourselves at this midpoint in this seemingly hopeless situation that's going on here in the, in the story of Esther. In chapter 1, there was a queen. Her name was Vashti. Uh, she didn't obey the king. He got mad, so he banished her from the throne. So they had to pick a new queen. There was this young Jewish orphan girl. Her, her Jewish name was Hadassah. Her Persian name, this takes place in Persia, was what? Esther and they basically have this beauty contest if you will this bachelor contest to find a new queen and wife for the king she wins the contest and she is chosen uh, the, the most uh, unlikely of choices she becomes the queen of, of Persia and so that's what basically happens in chapter 2 now her adoptive father is a man by the name of help me church Mordecai and Mordecai uh, is realizing she is, is now the queen and uh, Mordecai is also in a, a position of power, kind of in the gate, and, and um, you know he kind of was a counselor and things like that to the empire. And he heard about these two guys who wanted to basically a conspiracy to kill the king. And he lets the queen know, and he gets word to the king, and he saves the king's life. But if you remember back in chapter 2, did he get rewarded for it? No, he didn't get recognized, he didn't get rewarded, but he did save the king. That's going to become very important in our story today in chapter 6, even though that in our story happened five years ago. And so then in chapter 3, um, Mordecai, who was also a Jew like Esther, there was a man who was kind of the prime minister that the king had chosen. His name was Haman. And, and how do we react to Haman? Yeah, he's the villain in our story. And Haman 
wanted everybody to bow down to him because of his position. But there was a man named Mordecai who would not bow down to him because he was a Jew. And Haman was, was a descendant of the enemies of the Jews, the Amalekites. And so uh, Haman gets mad at Mordecai and he decides to not only get even with Mordecai, but because he was a Jew, to kill all the Jews in the entire Persian uh, nation, just to, to get rid of all of them, some two million people. And so he, the king agrees, they, they sign a decree that in a year, all the Jews are going to be annihilated, including Mordecai. And let's not forget that Esther is also a Jew, and she's the queen. Now, the king doesn't know this yet, but he's going to find out. Well, Mordecai realizes, hey, Esther's the queen. Maybe she can do something to save her people. And so he says, Esther, would you go to the king and ask to talk to him? In chapter 4, she does that. She agrees to help. Chapter 5, she invites the king to a banquet to find out if he'll listen to her. That banquet took place in chapter 5 last time. Things went pretty well. And so she felt the Lord saying, have one more banquet. And so she's planned a second banquet we're going to see uh, next week in chapter 7. And it's at that banquet she's going to tell the king about this plan to have her people annihilated. And that Haman, the king's right-hand man, is behind all of this. Well, in the process of that, if you remember last time in chapter 5 when we ended, you know, all this was started because Haman couldn't stand who? Mordecai. And Haman sees Mordecai once again not bowing down to him and he can't wait the year to, to kill all the Jews. He's so mad at Mordecai, he so hates him that he decides to build the gallows to have Haman, uh, excuse me, to have Mordecai hung on them and he's going to now go and ask the king permission. Hey, he's like, I don't like this guy and since you, you know, king, will do anything I ask of you, I'm going to hang uh, Mordecai because I can't stand him. He won't bow down to me. And that's where we, we left Last time in the study of chapter 5. It seemed like a hopeless set of circumstances for the Jews who had a decree for them to be killed. For Mordecai who was about to be hung. But everything in this story that seems so hopeless is about to turn. And it's about to change. That's why I've titled this message, The Turn. And we've kind of been having fun with, you know, playing cards. And if any guys play like Texas Hold'em, you know, there's a flop. And then there's the turn. And then there's the river. And the turn is the middle one where everything kind of changes. You know, are you going to decide to stay in or not? Well, this is the turning point in chapter 6 of this story. It's the hinge. It's a reversal of destinies that begins to take place. Now, at this point, Esther doesn't know how God is going to turn this around for her and her people. Mordecai doesn't know how he's going to get out of being hung and how his people are going to be annihilated. The Jews, nobody knows how except for one person. Who's that? God. God knows how. And as we've talked about several times in the book of Esther, as you read it, God's name. This is a unique book in the Bible. His name is not mentioned one time. Yet he can be seen everywhere in this book at work behind the scenes. His providence is seen. And we're going to see that today again. And again, this reminds us of times in our lives when we're going through circumstances that we wonder how. And maybe even times, have you ever been going through something in your life and you felt like God was absent? You felt like, where, God, have you forgotten about me? Have you gotten so busy with everybody else? How are you going to help my situation? And this message will be an encouragement to you if you've ever felt that or you ever will. You know, and it reminds us of what Hebrews 13, chapter 5, chapter 13, verse 5 says. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Aren't you thankful for that verse, church? He will never, even when it seems like God is not around and it seems like he is absent. And we don't know how our situation could possibly change. 
When we know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here's the result of that. Verse 6, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I'll not fear what man can do to me. We're going to see in three specific times, three specific ways, how God is going to turn this whole story around in the life of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews and how he can turn our lives around as well. If you're taking notes this morning, let me give you the first specific time how God steps in and begins to turn this whole story completely around. It happens in a night of discovery, if you're taking notes, a night of discovery. And let's pick it up in Esther chapter 6, verse 1. That night... Now, actually, let's grab verse 14 from chapter 5 to get the context. Okay, here's what's just happened. Uh, then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, they're talking to Haman because he's so upset about Mordecai not bowing down to him. Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that who be hanged? That Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet because he was also invited to the banquet. Now, he doesn't know what this banquet's about. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made that night. So that night, he's building the gallows to hang his arch enemy Mordecai on it. That's Haman's plan. In the morning, he's going to come to the king and ask for permission to do this. Now watch what God begins to do that very night as these gallows are being made for Mordecai. Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not what? Any y'all have been there? He could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, which is the history of the kingdom, and they were read before the king. <laughs> That'll make anybody sleepy. It's a history book. And it was found written. Now watch this. Watch God begin to work. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands or kill King Ahasuerus. Then the king said... What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? I mean, this man saved my life. Have we done anything to honor him? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who's in the court right now? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang who? Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman's there in the court, standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. <laughs> This is hilarious, y'all. When you really understand what is about to take place in chapter 6, and if you've ever wondered if God has a sense of humor, it's right here. And let me show you how we see five evidences of the providence of God and his hand beginning to work to turn this whole story around. If you're taking notes, first of all, we see it in the fact that the king has insomnia that night in verse 1. He can't sleep. You know, isn't it amazing today you watch commercials on TV and, you know, now, nowadays, you know, used to you just go to the doctor and you'd learn about medications. Now you learn about medications on TV, so you'll ask your doctor about them. And, you know, they have all these medications. Have you noticed all of the commercials for sleep aids nowadays? I mean, you got Ambien and Lunesta and Roserum and Sonata. And, you know, and they, they make it sound so great. And at the end, they go, may cause, you know. And then by the time you hear all the side effects, you're like, I think I'll just stick with the no sleeping. But I, I was thinking about this this week. As you see all these commercials on TV, like never before, you know, sleep aids because people can't sleep. Yet on every corner today, there's one of these. And I just kind of wonder if there's any coincidence there in connection that we can't sleep and there's Starbucks everywhere we, we turn. But, you know, we don't know why the king couldn't sleep. But he couldn't. I mean, maybe he was thinking about his kingdom and his rule and all the decisions he had to make. Maybe he was thinking about the banquet he was getting ready to go to. What is my wife, Esther? What is it she wants to talk to me about? I mean, this is something big. This is really important. She's called me. She's called Haman to this banquet. You know, what is this news? Maybe he couldn't sleep because of that. 
Maybe he couldn't sleep because he had acid reflux from the first banquet and the meal. We, I mean, we, don't, we don't know. But, but he couldn't sleep. But here's what we do know and what I believe. Behind it all was the sovereign hand of God who had something to tell him. Something to say to him and he wouldn't allow him to sleep. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but there have been times in my life where I've woke up in the middle of the night and I really felt like God was trying to talk to me. Happens a lot on Saturday night before messages on Sunday morning. You know, I'll be thinking about that and God will wake me up and say, don't forget to say this. Don't forget about this verse. And I'll sometimes get up and I'll write it down. But, but God had something to say. His hand was in the fact that the king could not sleep that night. Psalm 121 verse 3 reminds us of this. That he, God, will not allow your foot to be moved. He's watching out for us. He who keeps you will not slumber. Aren't you thankful that God is a God that never sleeps and slumbers or takes a vacation? He's always in control. He's always watching. I mean, even when we're asleep, he's awake and he can wake us up. One writer said it this way. Don't let worry keep you up all night. Give it to God. You know why? He's going to be up all night anyway. And that's true. He's up all night and he's watching. And so we see God's hand begin to turn this situation in the king's insomnia. Secondly, letter B in your notes, we see God's hand in the king's choice of entertainment. He can't sleep. And so I mean, he didn't have ESPN. That's what I do a lot of times when I can't sleep. I go watch ESPN, you know, watch Tebow over and over, you know. And I, I, watch, I watch ESPN until I fall asleep. You know, he didn't have Ambien. He didn't have Tylenol PM. So he asked in verse 1 for the book of the Chronicles, the history of the kingdom, to be read. And he thought, you know, that'll, that's pretty boring. That'll make me go to sleep. But God's hand was in that. I mean, because the king had every kind of entertainment in the Persian Empire at his disposal. I mean, he could have brought, he could have brought in, you know, some people maybe can't sleep, you listen to music. He could, have brought, he could have brought a violinist in to play him nice sleeping music. I mean, he could have brought, you know, a, a, a joker in to, to entertain him, you know, and, and juggle for him. Um, he could have got one of his concubine to come in and keep him company. We know he had hundreds of those. He could have had his guards play a game with him. But God led him to choose to have the history of his kingdom read to him. And that was not an accident. Let me remind you, Proverbs 21.1 says this. The king's heart is in the hand of who? The Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And God leads the king to choose to listen to the history of the kingdom. And this was no accident or coincidence. We see the third hand of God in letter C, the servant's choice of books. I mean, it was one thing that he couldn't sleep and he asked for the Chronicles, one of the books to be read. But it was even God's hand was in the servant's choice of books in verse 2. Because he would have went to this huge shelf that had all these old scrolls. You know, at this point, I think the king had been on the throne like 10 years. He could have chosen any of them. But God guided and led his hand to a book of a history that had happened five years ago. And he happened to grab that book and he began to read it. And he would choose from hundreds of scrolls to read this account that happened back in chapter 2 about how a man named Mordecai foiled an assassination plan on the king but was never rewarded for it. Again, you all, no accident, no coincidence. That's God's hand turning the situation. We see it in the king's insomnia. We see it in the king's choice of entertainment. We see it in the servant's choice of books. And then letter D, we see it in the king's delay in rewarding Mordecai five years ago. Notice what it says in verse 3. Let me read it again. Then the king said, after he hears about Mordecai saving his life, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing. Nothing's been done for him. I mean, the king's like, I mean, have we sent him a fruit basket or a gift card? I mean, have we, have we done something nice for this guy? The guy, dude, saved my life. 
And if you remember back in chapter 2 when we read about that the first time, remember I told you, you know, God does not always immediately reward us, but he does reward us. And sometimes he has a reason for waiting. We just have to be patient enough to allow things to work themselves out in God's timing and not our timing. And this situation right here is key to this whole story. Because had Mordecai been honored five years ago when it first happened, the events of this critical day that we're about to read could not have occurred. But God in his providence and his sovereignty allowed five years to go by. Let me, let me remind you guys of something. Put it in your notes. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. God's delays in our life are not always God's denials. You see, sometimes we pray about things and, and we say, well, God didn't answer. You know what? God always answers our prayers. Amen? Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's yes. And sometimes it's not yet. That's what's happening in the story. And Mordecai was a godly enough man. Remember when he wasn't rewarded, he didn't throw a fit, he didn't cry, he didn't moke. He just went on. He just did what God would have him to do. And he trusted God with the results and the timing. And he was patient. I heard about one man, he said, he prayed for, he goes, you know, he told his pastor, pastor, you've been talking about patience. And I've been praying for patience. And he said, well, how have you been praying for patience? He said, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> we need patience. Proverbs, or Psalms 31.15 says this, My times, our life, our situation are in your hand. God is in control. He is on the throne. We just have to be patient. I love the verse in Psalm 27.14. The first, first word of this verse is the hardest for us to do. Can we all say it? Wait. Let's all say it together. Wait. Let's say it together because only three of you are saying it. Wait. There you go. What is going on in your life right now that you need God to fix, but you need to wait? Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Don't freak out and worry. Just wait. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And like Mordecai, God wants us to receive the right reward at the right time and for the right purpose. And we're going to see that today. If Mordecai did ever wonder, God, why didn't I get rewarded for saving the king? He is now going to understand the answer in God's timing. And then we see God's hand one more way. The timely arrival in verse 4 of Haman. I mean, here the king hears, read to him about Mordecai who saved his life and nothing was done for him. And so what the king would do is whenever he had a decision to make, he would look into his court to one of his counselors and he would get advice. What just so happened that the man walking into the court at that moment was none other than Haman. Now, Haman is walking into the court. It's probably morning by now. And he's coming to the king to ask if he can hang somebody. Guess who the somebody is? It's Mordecai. Guess who the king wants to reward? Mordecai. I mean, this is hilarious. And so Haman comes in all, you know, getting ready to hang his arch enemy. The king says, oh, who's in the court? It just happens to be Haman. Well, bring him in because I'm going to ask him advice for how we should honor this man who saved my life. Haman's been up all night probably watching the gallows be prepared and constructed. He can't wait to go talk to the king to get permission to hang Mordecai the Jew. I mean, this is amazing. And God is setting the stage for what he wants to take place. You see, Haman thinks he's in control. The king thinks he's in control. But who's really in control? God's in control. He's always in control. 
And these evidences of the hand of our sovereign God should lead us to praise him and thank him for his goodness and watchful eye in our lives at all times. Proverbs 21.30 says this, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Nothing can, can, can succeed against the Lord. I mean, Haman has been working behind the scenes from chapter 2 to try to get rid of the Jews and Mordecai. But it is God who's going to prevail. Romans 8.31, boy, we need this verse. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you know what the answer to that is? Nobody. Nobody. God cares. As, as we see these five evidences here, I mean, God is, is working at every turn and every detail in this story. I mean, this could not be an accident. This could not be a coincidence. And it ought to remind us all that God cares about every detail of our life and every day of our life and every decision of our life. We, we've all heard the stories over and over about the tragedy of September 11th. And, and so much talk about all the thousands of people that lost their lives. But what about the stories of the many people whose lives were saved that day because of God's hand stepping in. I read a story recently, uh, one man gave, they, they actually interviewed some people who had, has, lives had been saved from September 11th because of situations that happened in their life that they look back and say, I think that was the hand of God protecting me. One man was late in traffic and didn't make it to the Twin Towers and was saved. Uh, another lady said, it was my day to bring donuts to my office. And everybody in my office was killed but me because I was getting donuts. Another person said my alarm clock didn't go off that day and I was frantically trying to get to work, but that saved my life. Someone else got caught in a traffic accident. Someone else missed a bus. Another man talked about how he spilled coffee on his shirt. He had to change his shirt. It made him late and he was saved that day. Another lady said my car wouldn't start. There was one man who said I had just bought a brand new pair of shoes and I would always get off the bus at a certain spot and I'd walk about a half a mile to my office, but I had new shoes on. I developed a blister in my walk and I stopped into a Walgreens to get a Band-Aid. And that kept me from being there when the towers came down. You see, these evidences are evidence of the hand of God reminding us that God's providence will fulfill His promises. His providence, His hand in our life will fulfill His promises. We see God begin to turn the story, first of all, through a night of discovery. The king discovers what Mordecai had done for him and not been rewarded. Let me give you the second thing that happens. We see God's hand begin to turn the story, not only in a night of discovery, but during a morning of decision. A morning of decision. Look at uh, verse 6. We pick it up there. And this is great. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, I'm the man. Everybody loves, I'm having Haman, I love Haman t-shirts made right now for the Persian Empire. He's like, he's got to be talking about me. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, here's what I think you should do. Let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback throughout the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have suggested, and do so for 
Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken <laughs> Hollywood couldn't make this up I mean this is where Mordecai poops his pants I mean I mean, I mean, or Haman, excuse me. Haman is like, Haman is mortified. Or Mordecai, we should say, maybe. I mean, he's like, I was coming in here to have this guy hung. This guy I can't stand. This guy that won't bow down to me. This guy that won't honor me. And now you want me to parade him through and honor him. I mean, th this would make a great want to get away commercial. I mean, this would, would be great. And I mean, this is one of those times where you wish you had an illustrated Bible, you know, to, to see this. And every once in a while, Hollywood comes along with something that matches up pretty good with the Bible. And we've been kind of showing some of these scenes. So here's a scene from the movie One Night with the King about this story and kind of how it might have taken place. Rez, the matter disturbs me. You may be of assistance. I am most pleased, my lord, for I too desire your counsel on a matter. A certain man has rendered great service to me. He has received many honors amongst his people, but he once saved my life. I feel despite everything, full recognition has not yet been given him. But think you shall be done for this man in whom the king delights to honor. Let a royal robe be sent for. One his majesty has donned in public. And a horse. On whose head a royal crest is set. Deliver them to... One of the noblest princes of the face. So that he can array the man in whom the king delights. And then... Parade this man through the streets proclaiming. Thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. Most excellent proposal. Go yourself now and do all you have suggested. My lord. To a one Mordecai. The scribe who sits within the king's gates. Mordecai. The Jew. I mean, only God could write a story such as this, where you see his hand everywhere. And you know what? Before we move on too far, a lot has been said in commentators about, you know, what is God trying to do to Haman here? I mean, we know Haman is the villain in this story. He's very evil. He wants to kill God's people. You know, and so a lot of people, commentators have said, well, you know, God is just trying to completely hu humiliate Haman, you know, and just trying to make fun of him. And I think that's part of it. But I, I do also believe that God is right here trying to get Haman's attention. Because we have a God who loves everybody. And if we are willing to repent and turn from our sins and turn to him, he'll forgive us. And I think Haman here has a chance to realize, you know what? I'm trying to fight against God and his people. Maybe I ought to change some things 
but unfortunately he, he doesn't. But as you think about this, Haman's day began by thinking, this is the day I finally get to kill Mordecai. I get to hang him. I get to be honored by the king. He's thinking as he's standing there, you know, telling the story. I get to, after that, go to a banquet with the, with the king and queen. I mean, this is going to be the best day of my life, is what Haman's thinking. And then everything turns. You see it? See us? Everything is turned by the hand of God. Proverbs 11.8 says, The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. Let me read that again. The righteous is delivered from trouble. That would be Mordecai in this story. And it comes to the wicked instead. That would be who, church? Haman in this story. What a difference. As you look at that verse for just a moment, I want you to pay attention to something we don't usually pay attention to. It's the comma. What a difference a comma makes. Which side of the comma do you live on? Because this verse is true for all of us. It's true for all of us. We've seen a night of discovery. God's hand turning the situation in a morning of decision where he decides to honor Mordecai. And then we see finally God's hand in the fact that this turns into a day of disgrace for Haman. What he thought was going to be a day of delight is now a day of disgrace. Watch what happens in verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. Mordecai just took it, said thanks, went back to work, because he wasn't a prideful man. But Haman hurried to his house, and notice, notice his countenance now. He's mourning. He's weeping, and he has his head covered in disgrace. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that happened to him, I'm sure they probably tried not to laugh, the wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, and it's coming down now, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, and he is, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. You're, they're like, you're toast. You're doomed. I mean, you've messed up, Haman. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Things are not going well for Haman at this point. Everything now in this story has begun to turn. I mean, there's so many ironies in this incredible, beautiful story of Esther. I mean, Haman, think about it. Haman wanted praise from Mordecai. That's what he was so upset about. God turns the situation, and now who gets the praise? Mordecai is being praised, and Haman is in disgrace and humili humiliation. Mordecai, in chapter 4, his head was covered when he found out that his people were going to be annihilated, and he was disgraced, but now God has turned the situation, and it is Haman going back to his family and his house, and his head is covered, and he is in shame and disgrace. The gallows that Haman has built to hang Mordecai on. God has now turned this story and someone else is going to be hung on those very gallows. So what is going to happen next now as Haman goes to the banquet with the king and Esther is now going to reveal this evil plot and plan that Haman has devised to kill the Jewish people and finds out that the queen Esther herself is also a Jew. Who's going to be hung on these gallows now? Next week, you will find out. So you got to come back next week and find that out. But before we close this morning, let's bring this to some very practical application where we live today. In chapter 6 of Esther, everything 
has turned by the sovereign hand of God. You can't miss it. God steps in, and even though his name is not mentioned one time, you can, we cannot deny that God is at work turning this situation. I mean, really, it's a reversal of destinies. This chapter, this story. I mean, as you read this story, it started in chapter 1, a reversal of destinies. We went from Vashti being queen to Esther being the queen, a reversal of destinies. We've gone from Mordecai, about to be killed and hung, to now a reversal of destinies, and now he's honored. We've gone from Haman being honored to the position of prime minister, second only to the king, and now everything's about to turn, and his destiny will be reversed completely, as we'll see next week. Now, we know that the word of God is inspired. By the Holy Spirit. Amen? I mean, this is not just a book uh, of myths or fables or somebody made up. God is the one that wrote the Bible for us. I mean, it was men that penned it, but it was the Holy Spirit that told them what to say. The, the Bible tells us all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is given by inspiration of God. It, 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 it comes from two Greek words, pneumotheos. It means God breathed. And, and even though this was a story that God had penned and put into the scripture. It is also literature. The Bible is a history book. It's true history. It's also a book of literature. And in literature, for those of you that like to, to read and study literature, there's a word, a literary word to describe the book of Esther and what we just saw take place where everything turned on a dime. And it's called perepity. And you have it in your notes, perepity. And here's what perepity means. A sudden and unexpected change of fortune or reverse of circumstances. That is certainly what has just happened in the book of Esther. A perepity is something one writer said that swiftly turns a routine sequence of events into a story worth telling. I think we would all agree that Esther is certainly a story worth telling because of this twist, this turn, this, this reversal of destinies, this perepity event in literature that takes place. You know, in movies, we would call this a movie with a what? With a twist. You know, if you think of movies with a twist, I came up with some this week. You think of like The Village. Have you ever seen that, boys? They're not a twist at the end of that movie. And I'm not going to tell you what it is if you haven't seen the movie. The Sixth Sense. You know, I mean, there's a twist in that movie. When you realize what's really going on, Shutter Island, there's a twist. I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what's really going on in that movie. Um, and then Star Wars, probably one of the biggest twists ever. I mean, who could ever forget the line? Luke, I am your father. You know, and everybody's like, oh, oh my gosh. You know, I mean, everything changes. It's a, it's a twist. It's a turn. It's a perepity. It's a reversal of destiny. And you know what? When you think about it, it's the theme of the Bible. The theme of the Bible is a change of destiny. Think about the disciples for a moment. These were common, everyday fishermen. They meet Jesus, they begin to follow Jesus, and their destiny completely changes because those 12 men turned the world upside down. We have Christianity today because of those men, because they were allowed Jesus to turn their life around. To, to, to put a twist on their life. Think of the Apostle Paul. What was his name before his name was Paul? Saul. Saul of Tarsus. You know what he did? You know what his job was? Kill and persecute Christians. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And there's a twist. There's a change. There's a reverse of destiny. And Paul turned the world upside down. And was the greatest church planner and missionary to ever walk the face of this earth. Because he allowed Jesus to change his life. You want to talk about a twist? You want to talk about a turn? You want to talk about... A perepity event, 
Jesus Christ, who was put on a cross 2,000 years ago, crucified, laid in a tomb, buried for three days, and then everything changed, didn't it? When he rose from the dead. He, everything turned about him, and everything turned about our lives, those that put our faith and trust in him. But it's the theme of the Christian life. That God wants to step in and turn our lives and our destinies and our circumstances and situations around for his glory. Listen to some of these verses about the Christian life and how God has changed our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we who were sinners might become the righteousness of God in him. He stepped in. He who knew no sin became sin so that we can have our sins forgiven. That's a parepity. That's a twist. That's a turn. Colossians 1.13 says this of believers. He has delivered us from the power of what? Say it, church. Darkness that we were in and now has conveyed, turned us into the kingdom of the son of his love. 1 Peter 2.9 says it this way. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him. Now watch this. Who called us out of Darkness and into his marvelous light. He turned us from darkness to light. It was a parepity. It was a twist. It was a turn. It was a change of destinies for us when we put our faith and trust in Christ. I love how verse 10 says it. We who were once not a people of God, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When Jesus Christ steps into our lives, everything changes. Everything turns. And Jesus, listen, church, he wants to reverse your destiny today if, he hasn't, if you haven't allowed him to already. Beginning with salvation, turning you from darkness to light, from being a sinner to being a saint, being a believer, from being headed to a place the Bible calls hell to a wonderful place the Bible calls heaven. You have to, by faith, open your heart and life to allow him to make that change. Some of you here today, you've made that decision, many of you. But that same God that changed your eternal destiny, listen, can change your circumstances and situations. Now, will he always? No. Sometimes he'll say, my grace is sufficient for you. My mercy is sufficient for you. But sometimes God will actually turn complete situations around when we put our faith and trust in him and wait on him when we're patient. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe right now your marriage, you go, I, I don't know how much longer this marriage is going to last. I don't know if it's going to make it. I don't know how it could possibly get better. I don't know how it could ever, you know, be what God wants it to be. But if you, if two people will allow one God to step in, the same God that can change eternal destinies can change a marriage. Do you believe that church? Say yes. yes. We've seen it happen over and over again. And maybe it's something with your finances that God, you can help, God can help turn around. As you put biblical financial practices into your life. Instead of trying to do it your own way. Maybe it's a habit in your life. That you think, I'll never break this habit. I'll never be able to stop doing this. If you will trust fully God and submit to him. He can twist that. And he can turn that whole thing around. And when God steps into our lives. When we allow him to in those seemingly hopeless situations. Where we go, how could this ever change? How could this ever change? You know, we, we try to figure out how. I don't know how this could possibly be turned around. It's those times that God does his best work and he steps in. And when he does it, 
then we look at those things and we say, that had to be God. Anybody need that in your life? Amen? Well, where's something that happens in our life where you go, that had to be God. That wasn't me. That wasn't my husband. That wasn't my friend. That wasn't my children. That was God. There's no other way to explain it. And I'm telling you all, when that happens in your life, it blows you away. Just like this story. And that God we're reading about that turned this whole story around is still turning things around today. And we look at those things and we just can only say one thing. That had to be God. Do you need that in your life? Do you need that in your life today? Here, here's the problem. Let me leave you with this thought. I deal with it. You deal with it because we're human. Here's the problem. We ask the wrong question. We are too concerned with the question how instead of asking why or what. What? We're too concerned with asking God how instead of asking what. You see, listen, church, you and I are not responsible for the how. That's up to God to work out the how and the details. But we are responsible for the what. What, God, do you want me to do? What, God, do you want me to do differently? What, God, can I do? I'll do what you want me to do, and then I'll let you do what only you can do. You do the how, I'll do the what. That's what's going on in this story. You see it everywhere. Esther and Mordecai did not know how God was going to work things out. They just knew what God wanted them to do, and they did it. What, what do you know God wants you to do right now or not do? And then will you leave the how to him? I, I remember, and I, I know I mentioned it a lot because it was totally a turning point and a twist in my life in my family's life, when we knew God was calling us to Denver to plant the Orchard Church, we had never lived in Denver. We had no friends. We had no family. We knew nobody here, but we knew this is where God wanted us. And in our humanness, we said, how are we going to do that, God? How are we going to start a church? How are we going to meet people? How are we going to have a place to meet? And God just said, you don't worry about the how. You just do what I've told you to do. And when we got over that and we just did what God told us to do, God's taking care of the how, hasn't he? And, he, and it, was a, it was a change of destiny in our lives and many of your lives. And God wants to do the same thing. When we focus on the what and allow God to take care of the how, he can turn our destiny just like he did Esther's and Mordecai's. And as we're going to begin to see in the next couple of weeks, the whole Jewish nation. If you'll just allow him to.